Let us pray. Grant that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, all that we offer to you now, focused upon you and offering ourselves to you in love, that they may make your heart glad, be an expression of our true devotion to you, an engagement of our spirits with your Holy Spirit, the dynamic nature of scripture, people, spirit and words on paper becoming the word made flesh in our living. Amen. So in this 15th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is focusing on how the disciples are intimately and inextricably connected to him, or they hope inextricably. Jesus is the vine, and they are the branches. God is the vine dresser, and I would say the soil from which the vine grows, the source of all life and love and blessing of all hope. In an abiding image, advisedly said, an abiding image from John's 15th chapter is the fact that God abides, remains, is faithful and true, does not flitter about and disappear, but is that constant presence in all of change, the abiding presence of God. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and live as my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and so abide in his love. I have said these things to you, so that you may know my joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Jesus does not promise that if you obey my commandments, you will live in me as a reward, but in obeying his commandments, you, by nature and consequence, inevitably live in Christ. It is in the doing, the living of our faith, that we live in Christ, and that we may experience the joy of Jesus' life. Joy is not happiness, it's not the satisfaction with our outward circumstances, it's, it's not a positive feeling about how things have developed in our lives, it's not giddiness at the possibility or the realization of a reward. Joy is deeper than that, it's not happiness. Joy is the abiding knowledge of the abiding presence of God. It is the liberating word that makes it possible for us to see in all of life and all the circumstances of our lives, good and bad, to see in them the abiding presence of God, God's purposes, God reaching out to us in love in all times and circumstances. Now this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
No one has any greater love than this, but that you would lay down your life for your friends. You are, you are my friends, and so you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer. I call you friends, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. I call you friends because I have shown you all that I am doing, all that I have heard from God. You did not choose me. I chose you, appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that God will give you whatever you ask in my name. I'm giving you these commandments that you may love one another. Amen. At first blush, these are words of comfort, but I would say also, particularly in the context of our lives in the 21st century, um, a challenge. You did not choose me, says Jesus, I chose you. We like to believe, delude ourselves into thinking, that we have made a choice in being with Christ, being for Christ, being joined into the body of Christ. And of course, at one level, that is true. We have exercised our agency. We have chosen to be here and not someplace else. We have chosen to devote ourselves to the worship of God and not to plying the, the courts of sport or the pages of the newspaper at this particular hour, but in a particular way, in a deeper, more powerful way, God has chosen us. This, of course, is how the disciples portray the experience of Jesus and those who follow him. They don't choose him. He literally chooses them. They don't listen to him preaching and then say, you know, I think this fellow may be onto something. I think he's got some good ideas. I like the proposals that he's made. I think he has an agenda which will be good for the people. I will subscribe to this. I will join up. Where do I get my membership card? No. Jesus is walking through the marketplace or by the seashore or the banks of the River Jordan, and he points at people and he says to them, Come, follow me. He chooses them, literally not figuratively, metaphorically, literally chooses them, and they follow. In John's Gospel, it is Andrew who is the first to leave John the Baptist and to follow Jesus. And then later, Nathaniel, having heard about the experiences of Andrew, asks, what's going on over there with this fellow Jesus, this itinerant preacher? And Andrew replies, come and see. These are words that are employed, of course, in the 20th century by Teresa, the founder of the Mothers of Charity, ministering to the poor and the despised, the literally rejected and discarded people who were dying on the pavements in the mass of humanity and cared for them and provided them human dignity. And when people asked if it was worth their while to come all the way to India 
to assess whether it was worth being part of what she was doing. They wanted to know from her exactly what was her plan, how did she do it, what was the funding source. Her only and consistent reply was, come and see. Ultimately, hearing, seeing, experiencing, being touched by Jesus, we pick up our palate and walk. Like Nathaniel, we go and find ourselves, our truest selves, in the company of this itinerant preacher. We hear the words of the resurrected Christ, I am the vine and you are the branches, and we find that security and sense of care and knowledge that we are never alone, that God is abiding in us and we are abiding in God. So who gets to abide in God? This is a question that uh, perplexed the early church, and from the book of Acts, written by the author of the Gospel of Luke, chronicling the experiences of the early church. In the 10th chapter, there's a wonderful story of Peter, who is, of course, the preeminent among the apostles, the equal among equals. He has a vision. He's on the rooftop, and he's hungry. They sat on the roof. It was a flat roof, and it was a place to escape the heat of the day in the house. And in his hunger, he had a vision of God lowering down a blanket, and on the blanket, were animals that were considered to be trafe, that is to say, not kosher, unclean, according to the laws of Leviticus, and a voice from heaven saying, take and eat. And three times Peter refuses because they are unclean. He won't eat these unclean animals. He's devout, he's devoted, he's dedicated to God. And then after his visions, someone comes and asks, brings an invitation from Cornelius, who is a Roman, a Gentile, a commander of a hundred Roman legionnaires, hence the title centurion, who wants Peter to come to him and preach to his household. He's heard about this Jesus of Nazareth and wonders what it might mean. And so Peter and his entourage and many of the members are quite concerned that he would go to the Gentile household. Off they go and arriving, he is greeted and welcomed by Cornelius and Peter says, now I perceive, perceive that God shows no partiality between Jews and Gentiles. And he begins to preach a sermon. And in the midst of that sermon, the Holy Spirit descends upon Cornelius and all his household, as the Spirit did at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. And as they receive the Holy Spirit, Peter says to his companions, how can we withhold the waters of baptism? if the Holy Spirit has already been given to these Gentiles. And so they are baptized that day. This is the opening, the transformation of the church into an exclusive body, a fellowship, a body of Christ that is not limited to one covenant people, but a covenant, a relationship in which others who were previously outside the covenant, that is to say Gentiles, you and me, are welcomed into the continuing covenant kept by a faithful God with God's people, Israel. Peter has the grace, the wisdom, the courage 
to stop seeing a stranger in Cornelius and instead to perceive a friend, a child of God, one who is beloved, who knows the presence of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He recognizes the unity of our common human experience. That the divisions that we draw, the delineations that we make, the definitions by which we seek to separate ourselves from others fall away. It's so the scales have fallen from Peter's eyes and now he sees more clearly as Christ saw that universal uh, love of God for all people. He is the embodiment, it seems to me, of the concept which comes from South Africa, a word in the Zulu language, actually a subset of the Zulu language, the Bantu language, which was made popular in the last decades of the 20th century by Bishop Desmond Tutu, Anglican Archbishop of Johannesburg, one of the great leaders in the movement against the heinous and vile system of apartheid, that white supremacist movement that destroyed the lives of untold millions, both white and black alike, in South Africa. It was Phil Dwyer who introduced this concept to me and to our congregation several years ago after his uh, trip to South Africa with Debbie and preached a sermon in which he talked about Ubuntu. Ubuntu is the idea of our common humanity. I am because you are. I am because we are. I cannot exist or understand myself apart from you and your identity. We are one. Each and every person you meet the people who look like strangers to you are, in fact, your siblings, your sisters, your brothers, the oneness of our lives. To live in Ubuntu, Archbishop Tutu said, one of the great religious spiritual leaders of the 20th, 20th century, a person who lives in Ubuntu recognizes and affirms the humanity and every person they meet. They affirm the humanity of each person is a child of God. They are not threatened by the accomplishments or the abilities or the, or the ability to do good in other people. For life is not a competition. Nor do they look with disparagement on those with whom they disagree. They understand our common responsibilities to bear one another's burdens. They also recognize that as one succeeds, we all succeed. And as one suffers, as another person suffers oppression and evil, subject to injustice, humiliation, dehumanization, diminishment, I am diminished. I am dehumanized. I suffer injustice. I am reduced by the reduction and oppression of another. We need, not as something that would be nice to have,
but an essential need, dependence upon each other. It seems to me that for us on this day when we give thanks to God for the gift of mothers, not only those who have given us life, but mothers through adoption and parenting, God-grandparenting and God-parenting and foster-parenting, all the ways in which families are created, those who fulfill that maternal role in our lives, show us the goodness that each and every one of us is beloved of God. To live a life of Ubuntu, I am one because we are all together. I am because we are. Just as the scales fell from the eyes of Peter, so may the scales that hold us back from recognizing and celebrating and affirming the inherent dignity in each being is our sister and brother. Be one of those pieces that we leave behind as we take on the mantle of God's resurrection love. Amen.